I think as a society, we have to think about education as having multiple purposes and focuses and be clear about which of those we're addressing in what context and how we measure success. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey, everybody. Ish here, joined today by Lu Yan Cho, Chief Learning Officer at To You. Lu Yan, great to have you here today. Would you be able to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Ish. I am Lian Chow. As you mentioned, I'm the Chief Learning Officer at QU Inc., which is the world's largest online program management provider. Uh, helps universities around the world take their programs from certificates to degrees online uh, to deliver them fully online for students remotely. And I've been in, in the ed tech industry my entire career. Started my career as a high school teacher in New York City back in 1989 and have founded several companies and been involved in the school startup space, both in private schools and charter schools. And I uh, have worked at small companies all the way through large public companies, but always with a focus on the intersection between education and learning, product management, product strategy, and technology. Listeners, I am so excited to have Luyan today. In, in the past year, I think he's one of the few individuals that has drastically shaped how I've thought about the online learning space. And obviously, too, you is a massive org. And, and Luyan, I'm really excited to talk about some of uh, the previous conversations we've gone into, specifically around student success. I really love that ABC framework you brought up in our very first conversation. All the ways that, especially at 2U, you've been able to build that holistic profile of the student journey, understanding when to step in, when to do student intervention. But before we get to all that juicy content, I like to start at the beginning and really help us and the listeners just understand your journey to you. So you mentioned, obviously, you started off as a high school teacher. Obviously, you've come a long ways and now being part of such a large educational organization. Uh, tell us about that journey. Yeah, it's been it's been a really fun, interesting, twisty, turny kind of uh, uh, path from the beginning to where I am now. I, I started as I started my career as a teacher in 1989. Really, almost by accident, I I had been I would I would was a academic philosophy major um, with an you know, intention to go on to graduate school in philosophy. I really didn't have much interest in teaching, which there's a whole story behind that as well. The fact that I wanted to go into academic philosophy, but I didn't want to teach tells you a lot about the, the issues that we face in, in, in higher education today. But I really wanted to write about philosophy and, and, and be an academic. And I thought I would, I was convinced to go back to my alma mater, the, the Dalton School, in New York City to teach for a year or two before I went on to graduate school and embarked on, on a career in, in academic philosophy. I, I happened to be at the same time also very interested in history of education, but also very interested and passionate about technology. So I was, I was a coder and a hacker way back in the days. My first computer was a um, 16K TRS-80 from Radio Shack. And I, I, I 
spent a lot of time in, in my youth from sixth grade through college, making trouble in the early online world uh, back in the days of dial-up networks and, and uh, phone hacking and stuff like that. So I was very passionate about all that and loved coding and used that separate from my academic and, and professional pursuits to you know, just earn some spare cash and have fun. And I never really, I, I actually, ironically, I always thought that education and technology were, were really poor for fits for each other. Everything I'd seen, or well, I should say te- not specifically technology, and I'll talk a little bit about that later, uh, but specifically digital technology and computers and education, because everything I saw, and going back to the late 1980s, everything I'd seen that involved using technology, using computers in an educational context was designed around automating and the efficiency of the delivery of learning content. And so it was, it was classic drill and practice type stuff. It was a, it was an attempt to increase the efficiency of a paper-based paradigm for, for learning. And I just found it incredibly uninteresting. So I pursued my interest in technology, my interest in education and history and philosophy completely separately. But I had this really interesting experience, which was, so 1989, I graduate from college, I'm 22 years old, and I end up in the classroom teaching ninth graders Western civilization from the same curriculum and the same textbook I had learned from whatever it was seven years prior. And a couple of things were really interesting. One of them was I didn't remember anything from what I would, what I have myself learned. And so I was just like most teachers staying one chapter ahead of the, the students reading the text, basically regurgitating it in the form of a lecture in the classroom giving kids tests to make sure that they had memorized the story that I told them based on the story that was in a textbook written by some textbook publishers, authors. The textbook itself, I just looked it up because I actually have it around here somewhere. I just found it the other day. The textbook had been written in like 1968. And the last edition of it, the last publication of it was from like, 1980. So I was teaching history from a textbook that had been written when I was about two years old. And so that was the context. And, and I, frankly, I was putting myself to sleep and I've, I, I felt like I wasn't doing much better for the students. Meanwhile, I had this very visionary mentor uh, and associate head of school, a guy named Frank Moretti, and he would ask me during my lunch breaks to come. He knew I was into technology. So he, he asked me to come visit the lower school, which was in a separate building, to see what he was doing there. And what he'd done was he'd, he'd hired some archaeologists who weren't professional teachers, per se, to create a, an archaeological excavation in a four by two sand pit in the backyard of the lower school. And he had second graders there. They had, were working with second graders to unearth these replica artifacts from the Metropolitan Museum 
of ancient Greek artifacts. And, and the kids were absolutely mesmerized and they were digging through this dirt. We're finding these fake artifacts and they were trying to figure out what they were and they were weighing them. They were learning Cartesian graphing in order to figure out where they should be digging next. They were trying to decipher the, the Greek letters on the, the pottery shards. They were running over to the high school to go interrogate the, the Greek language teacher to ask him to help them to decipher this stuff. They were going to the Metropolitan Museum to compare what they were finding with objects that were at the museum. And I could see the level of engagement that these kids had in their learning was so fundamentally different from the kids that I was lecturing to, teaching them the same thing, just at a, at a supposedly more sophisticated level. I was teaching ninth graders as opposed to, to second graders. And I thought to myself, this is the way that I want to teach. And I didn't even have the language for it. Today, anyone who knows anything about education and pedagogy would say, oh, well, that was a constructivist project there. It was project-based learning. It was collaborative learning. It was constructivist. The students, instead of being given the story about the historical past, were asked to find the, the constituent components of the past and create their own stories. And their relationship with the stories they created were far more profound than the relationship with the story that a textbook author and a teacher had created and had delivered to them in the classroom. I looked at these kids and I said, I, I have no doubt that many of these second graders will go on to become archaeologists and historians. And even if they don't, that their passion for history will be profound. And, I, and actually, I've stayed in touch with many of them. And I know that actually is the case, even as of today. So I, I went to my mentor and I said, we have to do this in the upper school. Like we should, we need to replace a textbook based curriculum with an archaeological approach like this. And he said, the problem is we don't have a sandpit big enough to do it. And that's when we had this moment of epiphany when we realized that you can build as big a sandpit as you want in, in a computer. And so in 1989, from 1989, 1992, we built this thing called Archetype, where we created on old, these were black and white Macintosh, original 128K computers networked to a 20 megabyte file server, but, and we buried a 25 square mile fictitious Peloponnesian archaeological site with some of the great artifacts of actual history in it. And we taught sixth grade ancient civilizations in a constructivist excavation-based approach. And it was completely transformative for me. It made me realize that we had an opportunity to use technology to bring a much more authentic form of learning to scale. Because most schools couldn't afford to do what we were doing in a physical sandpit. They didn't have the archaeologists. They didn't have a sandpit. They didn't have the Metropolitan Museum. But the computer technology, this new digital technology, gave us the promise of being able to do this at scale, regardless of the means of a school or a district or a classroom or the training of a teacher. That was a moment when I realized that's what I wanted to do uh, professionally, was to figure out how to leverage this technology to flip education upside down and make it into something that was deeply engaging, exploratory, rigorous, but, but really deeply personal and meaningful for students. 
And so that's what I spent the rest of my career doing. So from there, I, I started a company called LearnTech. Ironically, at the time, 1993, what we were doing at Dalton was on early local area networks. We were literally like using diamond drills to drill through walls and floor plates to thread cable, token ring ca- cable at the time. We were created our own intranet to run all this stuff. And then when I started my company, I realized there was no internet at that point. That was, and certainly no internet widely available to schools. I started a company called LearnTech and we did, we trying to take those types of experiences and deliver it on the cutting edge technology of the time, which was the CD-ROM. And I actually, in 1996, built a 3D adventure game called Ching, Q-I-N, which was a Indiana Jones-esque 3D puzzle-based adventure set in the tomb of the first emperor of China, where in order to solve the game, you have to learn all sorts of aspects of Chinese history and culture and civilization. It was actually one of the best-selling games, uh, consumer games in 1996. And so I, I did that for about 10 years and I built a lot of really interesting educational, at the time we used to call it edutainment applications, And then I sold that business after 9-11 and we had a pretty rough go of it. Our office was down by the Trade Center and and we were highly disrupted by all those events. So I ended up getting out of that business, selling it, and and then ended up working with the original head of the Dalton School to start a new ground up technology based school at the at Columbia University. So it was Columbia University's first and only K-8 school which still exists, it's called the School of Columbia University. It's on 110th and Broadway in Manhattan. And at that point, you know, so this was now whatever, 10 years after I'd left Dalton, it was super exciting because we had an opportunity to leverage much more sophisticated technology or, partners, or partnerships with Apple and Microsoft and IBM to really do something that was purpose-driven from ground up with the use of technology at the core and that was a super incredible, exciting experience. Learned a lot from that. And then I left there and became the chief product officer at a company's startup called SchoolNet. That because in part because throughout that whole journey, I, I was really super conscious of the fact that the things that we were doing were incredibly exciting, but they had an impact on a very small and very privileged set of students. And I wanted to really figure out how to broaden the impact to public schools around the country. And SchoolNet was the first company that was a ed tech company from the start, whose customers were large urban public school districts, often the most challenged public school districts out there. And we built a data system, uh, we built a whole platform to use student performance data and to really drive curriculum design and development, assessment programs, professional development and training, student coaching. And that was an incredible experience. And that's where I really learned the, the discipline of product management, product strategy and product marketing. We sold that company to Pearson in 2011. It was the largest tech sale to a public company at that time. And, and then I thought, I'm an entrepreneur. I'll stay at Pearson Business, this 150-year-old education company known for its textbooks. I'll stay for a little bit and then go do something more entrepreneurial again. And I really fell in love with the breadth of impact that 
that Pearson was driving across the globe in education and its vision of building on its kind of legacy print-based business to do something that was much, much more digital and as a result, much more transformative. And so I ended up staying at Pearson for seven years. I became a chief product officer there. And that's where I learned a lot more about higher ed, workforce training, and also about global markets and what was going on outside of the United States. And I became very interested in workforce training and in the really the big gap between our higher education institutions and curriculums on the one hand and what the labor markets are looking for. It's really interesting where universities don't see it today necessarily as their jobs to prepare students to actually occupy high paying, high tech, high impact jobs. And they're starting to see the need to evolve their programs to address that market need. There was, there's a big opportunity right now, really in, in more job and career focused training and particularly in boot camps. And so I, I ended up leaving Pearson to become the chief product officer at a company called Trilogy, which does tech boot camps with universities. And we ended up selling that to you in 2018. And I became the chief learning officer at to you as a result of that. So that's been my, my journey, but it's been fun because I've had a chance to work across all of the, what we call ages and stages and also work both domestically and globally, and also learn a lot about the science, the art and science of product management as applied to education reform. Wow. What a journey. <laughs> and I think one of the things that I heard there was just having just the sheer breadth of experience that you've had, both in kind of the education side and then also the technology side. I think, Luyen, you're one of the few people who truly understands the, the bridge between technology and education and how it's being used in its current day. So I think you'd probably be one of the top leading experts in the world to answer this question, which is, how is technology being used right now when it comes to education? And really, what's the shortcoming? Where's the gap where it's obviously... This is where we go next in terms of education technology. This is how yeah. educators can build a deeper relationship with their students and drive transformation. Yeah. I think like any industry or sector in the early stages of digital transformation, education lags a lot of other industries and consumer markets. And we can talk about why that is as well. It's a education tends to be a late, a late, late adopter. Yeah, exactly. I think that it has started by using technology to do what it already does more efficiently. That, that's generally how technology is first adopted within a particular sector of human activity. Oh, wow. Hey, this technology can allow us to get rid of blackboards and record what a, a teacher writes on the board or will allow us to deliver tests more cheaply to students. And there isn't a lot of thought to why, are, why do we do that in the first place? Like, well, why did we do that? And is that what we actually want to be doing? Or did we do that because we were constricted by, constrained by the nature of the old technology? And without those constraints, could we rethink how we approached a particular thing? And that's what's starting to happen now. And so I think the most interesting things in ed tech involve a fundamental rethinking of the value that we can deliver 
to students, to learners in particular, but also to to educators and to families and to institutions. I think as an example, if you think about the the highly standardized, rigid approach to institutional education, learners grouped by age into what we call grades, classrooms of a very specific size that that 25 to 35 that fit in a classroom, a physical classroom with a certain number of seats, a standardized curriculum and textbook and tests, lecture-based instructional format. All of those things were really driven by the invention of the printing press because they they complemented or aided in the efficiency of the mass delivery of a quality educational outcome to lots and lots of students. It was the textbook democratized quality in education for a large portion of the population. And we it's important, like you got to see this both ways. Right? It's very easy for us to be dismissive of textbooks and the print-based educational model, but that was an incredible advance over what came before it, which was a more mentor guild-based learning model that really couldn't scale. And so it was limited to a very small number of elite families and students. The printing press allowed us to deliver a relatively standardized, quality-assured, quality-controlled learning experience to a broad swatch of the population. And it happened at exactly the time where much of the developing, developed world, much of the first, quote unquote, first world was shifting towards uh, more democratic ideals, towards a more industrialized approach to production in general, towards the notion of ensuring that its citizenry were prepared to participate in in democratic forms of government. And so it was really well suited for that moment. I think now the question is, how do we, and where I get excited is, how do we use, and a lot of people have said this for many years, but how do you use digital technology to allow for mass customization of learning? where each learner can have the benefit of the personalization that you used to be able to have in a more guild-based, mentor-based, one-on-one learning model, but at the same scale, if not greater scale than what print allows us to live, to deliver. Yeah. And it is something we've also observed, Luyan, which is this idea of personalization and scale tend to contradict each other in that when you have small class sizes, you can make education incredibly personalized, but as soon as you start to scale up, you start to lose that personalization and then outcomes also eventually drops out. So this has been the fundamental problem that so many people in higher education have been struggling with now for the past decade or so, which is how do you scale outcomes? And it seems like the most potential solution here is obviously technology, which is maybe technology can allow you to achieve personalization and scale at the same time. But like you mentioned just you know, a little bit ago, a lot of these institutions are very late adopters when it comes to technological trends. And it's, it almost seems if the last five years have taught us anything, it's that a lot of these educational institutions, even though we've had video conferencing and the ability to do live online learning, that really wasn't the standard. It wasn't how institutions deliver their education until they had to. I think the nice thing we, with COVID is it 
created all this innovation in the space, but it's because there was no other choice. And so that kind of, while it is great to see that progress, it is now, some might actually say that, okay, when will it take a pandemic again to force institutions to adopt the next, you know, wave of education? What will it take for entrepreneurs and people who are building the space to penetrate these institutions? Or are, are you pessimistic in, in terms of that actually happening? I think it's got, there's no silver bullet and there's no single answer. I think obviously no one anticipated the pandemic that we are living through right now. Having, working for a company that is, whose whole sole mission is to deliver online remote learning 15 years ago when TU was created, it was no one, nowhere in any version of the millions of business plans that were written was there a, a, a paragraph on how this is going to solve the needs during a pandemic, right? No one anticipated this. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you can plan for so much and there's a lot of serendipity. I think that what I always come back to is the first principles approach, which is what's the purpose of education? What are we trying to achieve? And that can be different at different levels of, and different types of education formal institutional education, early education versus second, primary, secondary versus tertiary, lifelong learning, et cetera. But what are we trying to achieve? And what does success look like? And how do you measure that? And, and I think that that's what institutions have to be thinking about. And I think that where the imperative will come, start to come from is that if you look at higher ed, let's just take higher ed alone. We have seen static to declining enrollments in higher education in the United States for the last 15 years. And there's a lot, a lot of, I mean, you don't have to be an ed tech aficionado to read the Wall Street Journal and other trades that are, and, and popular media that are really fundamentally taking higher education to task for charging a lot of money for something where there's real unclear value to students and has created this whole student debt crisis. And this is one of the great challenges in American society right now. And, and I think that's driven by the fact that we have not fundamentally had forced ourselves as a society to, to take stock of why we make this huge societal investment in higher education in the first place. What are we trying to deliver? And I, I don't have a clear answer to that ish. That's probably the more I'm in mean, the, the industry, the less I think I actually know. You know, the easy answer is to say, gee, it's about job outcomes. It's about gainful employment. It's about learning to earning. And I think there's some truth to that, right? I think the fact that, that universities charge the same amount for an MSW as they do for an MBA <laughs> says a lot. It tells you that for universities, they're not they don't think that the value of a the product they offer has to do with the actual life outcome for the student in, or career outcome. It's the degree that matters. So a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or, or a PhD or whatever it is, is of equal value regardless of what discipline it's in. They don't really think about the value in terms of does this actually help someone earn more in their lifetime, have better job opportunities, have a better career pathway. And that's, I think that's problematic, but I think we can go overboard in that direction too. And I, I'm a deep believer in, in liberal arts education. I'm a deep believer in, 
in in lifelong learning and inspiring a passion in in people to be curious and to be inquisitive and to want to constantly learn new things. And I actually think a focus on job outcomes, focus on on basic skills has increasingly, I think, proven to be at odds with developing that innate sense of wonder and purpose and 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 passion for learning as a good yeah. in and of itself rather than a means to an end. And so I think, but the point I'm making is I, I think it's much more than the pandemic. I think it's going to take the society really having an honest conversation with itself about why we're why we think education is so critical. Why do we invest the amount of time and energy and money into it that we do. And until we do that, I think we're going to be treading water. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. One of our former guests, Ryan Craig, in his book, New You, it talks a lot about the employment imperative, which is this kind of idea that the primary reason that students are coming to colleges are for these career outcomes. And one of the things that it seems existential, and we've talked about it extensively on the podcast, is this idea of in the age of the internet, industries are evolving rapidly. Like I, I graduated from the University of Michigan in 2017. Now it's been five years. And most of what I learned in my computer science major is pretty outdated, irrelevant. Actually, even when I was going to the curriculum, a lot of the curriculum was reminiscent of where computer science was in the early 2000s. And the industry, the internet has created this rapid exchange of information. Industries continue to evolve faster and faster. And now you have even these career paths that are emerging that didn't even exist two, three years ago. And this creates a fundamental issue, which is how does a higher education institution keep up with that? How do they, if they're expected to deliver job outcomes, yet everything that they teach becomes outdated in just months, how do you stay responsive to the market and, and deliver these outcomes that students are so desperately yeah. looking for? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, I think you almost have to strip away and, you know, almost unpack the needs of learners and the, and the role of education from the current institutional framework or, that we've created historically. There are very different forms of learning that are going to be important to anyone in this world right now, right? To your point, the reason we started the, the bootcamp business, the technical bootcamp business with Trilogy was because universities realized exactly what you said, which was that, hey, we, we know how to deliver an incredibly rigorous, robust bachelor's, master's degree in computer science. But it's like teaching ancient languages, like we're teaching Greek and Latin. No one who graduates from our program based on the curriculum that we've provided, taken them through, could go get even get an entry-level coding job, full-stack coding job at a, at, at, a, at a major company. So we created curriculums, bootcamp curriculums that could take anybody not just a computer science major, but in fact, a significant portion of our students don't even have a college degree and reverse engineer the specific skills they needed to get entry-level coding jobs. And the universities were like, at first they were like, oh, we're ready to do this. We, we have a computer science department. But very quickly, what they came to recognize was what they were doing in their computer science department was fundamentally different from what we were doing in the boot camp. And they didn't know how to do what we were doing in the boot camp. And so they were happy for us to actually build that and deliver it on their behalf. And I think that's going to be important. And But I think to your point, it's about how do you reduce the friction and the time to for learners who already have a core set of capabilities to, to 
upskill with new technologies, new capabilities, new approaches, new methodologies. And that's going to be true not only in coding it's going to, and, and computer science, it's going to be true in product management. It's going to be true in cybersecurity. It's going to be true in a- any field. I think there's also, at the same time, if anything, almost a greater need today for the more, the, the harder to measure, more affective human skills, habits, what I call habits of heart and habits of mind, things like inquisitiveness, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, problem solving, logical argumentation, presentation skills that are really, truly evergreen. And that I think that real career and not forgetting even even about career, like personal success will require a combination of those evergreen, more affective skills and capabilities on the one hand with the more specific job-based skills on the other hand. And, but if I had to bet like my kids, if I had to bank on which of those would be more important, it's actually the former, not the latter. Like, I think if you really focus on the former, the learners figure out how to get the latter. You need to provide the latter as well. Now, that may be a somewhat elitist view to some because there's some people for whom, you know, those broader sets of skills, those deep, they just don't have the luxury of time to invest in those things where they could get a better job today or tomorrow if they focused on the more career-focused skill. So it's there's no one-size-fits-all, as I said before, but I think as a society, we have to think about education as having multiple purposes and focuses. And be clear about which of those we're addressing in what context and how we measure success. Yeah, that's fascinating. Luyan, we're reaching the end of our conversation. So I want to leave you on this one last question, which is if we're to fast forward, let's say three decades, maybe even five decades, and now we're looking back and I'm curious what you think is the best, like the, the most optimistic outlook on how technology can completely transform education. Mm-hmm. It's it's, you know, the year 2050 and what has technology, what has technology done that has completely transformed how educators are delivering education to students in a way that is driving, you know, higher job outcomes at a more affordable price, accessible. And for learners at every stage from K to 12 to college to beyond. Yeah, I, I think that my, my hope and my vision is that through digital technology, we can provide deeply engaging, meaningful, purpose-driven learning experiences that take you out of the classroom. And that, that may be... Into the sandpit. Yeah, right. Into a sandpit. And it may be it may be metaphorical, not actual. I mean, I'm doing a lot right now with virtual reality and education. I see incredible promise there to provide educative experiences that put you out into the metaverse in a way that is incredibly engrossing and exciting and engaging, coupled with the ability to really have a much more profound understanding of what learners are actually learning, where their gaps are, what their needs are, how to personalize uh, instruction to fill in the area, the gaps, 
to be much more data-driven in the way that we think about learners and learning and to do it at, and this is the critical piece of it, much more cost-effectively than we've ever done it before in history. Education is phenomenally expensive right now. It is just, it is incredibly expensive proposition because it's so human intermediated. And I think what we should do is figure out how we reserve the high touch human one-to-one, again, coming back to the pre-print age of mentorship, guild-based learning, we should figure out how to get the economics of everything else so efficient that we actually can really unleash those high-touch, high-expense kind of one-on-one experiences, small group experiences to unlock value for learners in a deeply meaningful way. And I think it's about rebalancing the economic equation of learning in a way that drives much more profound personal relationship with lifelong learning. It's now our responsibility to make that our reality. Lian, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. I just last, do you have any last minute plugs in terms of how the audience can learn more about to you and keep up with you on social media? Sure. On Twitter, I'm at Luyen Cho, L-U-Y-E-N-C-H-O-U. I'm on LinkedIn and folks can DM me anytime, reach out. I, I love engaging with folks around all the stuff. As you can probably tell, I, I eat, drink, breathe, sleep, education and technology. So I'm always eager to talk to people about all of this stuff and hopefully can share some perspectives with others in the future. Terrific. Thanks so much for coming on, Luyan. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ish. Great discussion. If you enjoyed that episode, would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.